Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about critical theory and its relationship to critical race theory. And joining me today to discuss this, we have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. How's it going, Amber? Hey, John. Good to be here. And we also have joining us today, Dr. Scott Coley. Dr. Scott Coley is a lecturer of philosophy at Mount St. Mary's University, where he's also the director of the Global Encounters Program. He completed a master's degree in systematic theology from Notre Dame and a PhD in philosophy from Purdue University. How's it going today, Scott? It's going great. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Let's go ahead and begin with a little brief kind of orientation to critical theory. What's What's the history of critical theory and, and a nice kind of clear definition of critical theory? Uh, great. Okay. So um, a succinct sort of slogan form definition of critical theory would be that it's, um, it's a critique of enlightenment rationality. Um, and in a, in a more detailed uh, sort of way, I would put it this way. So the enlightenment epistemological agenda, which is typified by you know, the, the usual suspects, you got Bacon, Descartes, mm-hmm. Hume, Kant, Hegel, and so on. They have this agenda that culminates in a technique of knowing that we would call the scientific method. And of course, this is separate from what their specific purposes were. This is just sort of how it's turned out, right? And this method itself, the scientific method, isn't inherently, inherently problematic, according to critical theory. And in fact, part of critical theory's ambition is to combine methods of philosophical analysis with the observations of empirical science. So it's not that critical theory is antithetic to empirical science, but rather uh, critical theory's complaint is that in modernity, we have sort of collapsed all knowledge of objective truth into knowledge that's gained by means of empirical science. And so what we're left with is a situation in which all declarative statements fall into one of two uh, jointly exhaustive categories. One category is that of fact, which is objectively true and empirically verifiable. And the other category is that of opinion, which is subjective and not verifiable. Right? And in fact, this, this has actually been taught in our middle schools and, and high schools for some time now. Kids are asked to divide uh, declarative statements into the category of fact or opinion. And um, notice that evaluative claims, moral claims, are not empirically verifiable. And so which category do they fall into? Opinion. And this, uh, this is a disaster, right? So there's the, there's the, um, the slogan version and then uh, sort of the principal complaint. Yeah, that's very helpful, Scott, to just paint that picture for us of we live in this world where object and subject are bifurcated and objective truth and subjective opinion are totally separate from one another. They can't have anything to do with one another. And if they do, if our subjective opinion gets somehow leaked into our objective thought about something, that it contaminates our objectivity. So the best thing to do is take out your subjectivity so that you can have this pure objectivity by which you make all of your rational judgments from. So the idea is that if we 
try to push against pure objectivity, the fear is that we're just going to lose truth altogether and we're just going to fall into the sway of opinion and subjective perspective that doesn't have any correspondence to reality. It doesn't have any kind of objectivity to that. In what way is that also still stuck on the logic of modernity, if you will? Uh, good. So I think um, maybe if I could take a step back here and talk a little bit about perspectives on the relationship between science and religion, just to be clear, not the purpose of doing this is not to uh, make an immediate point about the relationship between science and religion, uh, but to illustrate a more general sort of problem that I think is uh, highlighted really well by sort of how we tend to think about the relationship between science and religion in modernity. So according to one view of science, the relationship between science and religion, um, empirical science tells a story about how the world is, and religion tells a different story about how the world is. And it cannot be the case that they're both correct. For example, uh, Genesis 1 through 3 tells a story about how the world came into existence and came to be how it is. And then evolutionary biology tells a very different story about how the world came to be as it is. And one of those stories is correct, or both of them are incorrect, but it cannot be the case that they're both correct. And on this view, uh, science and, and religion are these antagonistic forces. And what's happened in modernity on this view is that science has gradually overtaken uh, more and more of the explanation of how the world is, right? Uh, mm -hmm. It's explained more and more of objective reality. And in that process, we have less and less need for the resources of religion, right? Because we've got our explanation in empirical science. Okay, so that's, 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 that's one view. And incidentally, I'll just sort of put a pin in this, right? This is typically the view of the relationship between science and religion that fundamentalists take, mm -hmm. religious fundamentalists. So um, we can put the point this way. Actually, uh, someone like Richard Dawkins and Jerry Falwell or, you know, whoever your Pat Robertson, right, whoever your archetypal religious fundamentalist is, they actually agree on a whole lot of things. Where they disagree is that the fundamentalist says, uh, I pick religion instead of science. And the scientist says, I pick science instead of religion. It's kind of the Kantian project of religion within the bounds of reason alone. I'm going to prove to you that my religion is legitimate because it actually adheres better than other religions do or than atheism does to these particular ways of understanding rationality that modernity provides for us. That's uh, that's right. That's right. Perhaps perhaps Andrew, Amber, you would know you would know about more about this uh, question than, than than I do. But what what do they say? What do those folks say about the areas of religious belief that sort of don't submit to empirical verification? Well, that's where the contemporary evangelical apologetics program comes in. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so we can give you all, all these explanations or evidence for why we know that Jesus rose from the grave at this point, or we can try to understand by way of the same tools of modernity, how it is that it, it would not be unreasonable to say that Christ was fully God and fully man. So it's it's a way of taking my religion and appealing or, or showing its legitimacy or its its warranted nature, the warranted nature of its beliefs by adhering it or connecting it to scientific ideas of rationality. Right. 
right, they are perfectly happy to engage in this game of verification. Yeah, um, and the, the difficulty is you you wind up fighting fire with fire, right? Sure, sure. You wind up saying, "Let me let me let me stick up for my religion against your attacks of rationality by using the same tools of rationality to stick up for my religion," as opposed to, and we've talked about this before on this podcast, as as opposed to maybe allowing us to take the opportunity to step back and critically examine <laughs> what mm-hmm. those standards of rationality are and if those are the right, truest, and best, most virtuous standards. That's right. That's right. So, so okay. So in keeping with that, right, there's this, there's this other view of the relationship between religion and science that says, look, uh, science is about uh, one part of reality and uh, religion is about another part of reality. Right. There's some overlap. Yes. You know, there, there's some there's some area for us to sort out what appear to be conflicting claims. Right. But in some sense, empirical science is about how the world is and stuff that's verifiable. And it's been very successful and, you know, glad, glad to have it. Right. But the sort of physical, empirically verifiable universe is not all there is to reality. Mm-hmm. And religion covers this other part of reality that science doesn't even pretend to comment on. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, things like claims about moral truth, right? Um, so, so one problem that you encounter when you divide up the world into facts and opinions and you put um, moral claims into the, the opinion bucket is that X is wrong, but turns out to be a claim a lot like sort of blue is the best color. Yeah. And I mean, how on earth are you going to argue about whether blue is the best color? It doesn't make any sense. You can't, you can't have an intelligible disagreement about that. It's just a matter of taste, mm-hmm. right? And when moral claims end up in that same category, right? Claims about what people deserve, claims about justice, claims about uh, right and wrong, or, or um, our motivations for doing things individually or as a political community, then you can't have any intelligible public debate about which direction we should be going in. It's just a, it's just a matter of preference. Mm. Now, Scott, that, what about the people who will come back at that and say, well, no, I think our concepts of justice or even morality shouldn't be something that's resigned to the subjective side of the binary, if you will, but it should be on the objective side. So, you know, I'm going to engage in this project to root them in the objective side. Good. In, in what ways does that become problematic? Get, when I go over this in, in my classes, um, the first thing that my students try to do is to say, so what I do is I say, all right, you know, we're going to make the rules of the game. We're going to play this game called factor opinion, and you get to define fact, you get to define opinion. And, if, and I, I know what definitions they're going to give me because it's in their curriculum from high school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I say, and it's always the same. And I say, uh, okay, now I'm going to give you a series of declarative statements, and you tell me whether it's a fact or an opinion. Right. And I start out with something really harmless, like, you know, it's wrong to lie about your age. That's an opinion. They all say 100 percent. All right. What about it's it's wrong to lie in general? Uh, Hesitate a little bit, but they all say it's an opinion. And I just keep upping the ante, you know, until I'm getting to like genocide. And at that point, they realize that it's untenable to relegate morality to the domain of opinion. And they start trying to make moves. To, to sort of, sort of shoehorn moral claims into the category of 
verifiable fact. Um, and one of the first things they do is appeal to the law. Well, look, it, look, murder is against the law, so it's wrong. Do we really? But but let's think about this. Do we really want to define morality in terms of what the law is? Because then it seems like if we find out that we have a bad law, then we don't really have any grounds for changing the law. Um, and in fact, if you think that morality is just a matter of opinion, then you have no grounds for claiming that a society that prohibits slavery is any better than a society that allows slavery and in fact reinforces the institution of slavery. Mm. Um, they're just different. So speaking of slavery, within this broader landscape of critical theory, how, how does critical race theory fit in? Uh, good. Okay. So if I could um, segue to that, and I, I think that's a good jumping off point, if I could segue to that by just quickly saying something about narrative. Yes. Like, against this background of, of critical theories, critique of uh, modernity. So um, a story is a, you know, a sequence of events and a narrative by contrast is how a story unfolds from some or other perspective. So in the works of authors like uh, Jane Austen or uh, Charles Dickens, events unfold from a perspective that transcends the physical universe of the story. Um, in other words, the narrative offers the reader an objective viewpoint from which to understand and evaluate the motives and actions of, say, Miss Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy. Um, and from that vantage point, we can say, oh, um, she's mistaken about this, and he, he did the wrong thing when he behaved that way, right? Mm -hmm. So contrast this kind of storytelling with what we see in modernity, in sort of distinctively uh, modern literature and film say, William Faulkner, uh, Shelby Foote, Toni Morrison, or in, in film with films like Pulp Fiction. Uh, mm. I'm given to understand Inception. That's what my students tell me. I haven't seen it. Mm. So, so uh, just to take a really, really simple example, right? You read Three Little Pigs, which, which fits the, the sort of transcendent narrator side of things. If you read The Three Little Pigs, you can say precisely what happened. You can say who's the protagonist, who's the antagonist, who behaved well, who behaved badly. And, and what the moral of the story is, right? Well, who's the good guy in Pulp Fiction, right? And for that matter, what happened? And why did the principal characters, characters uh, do what they did? So here's the, here's the point of this sort of segue, right? If science, if empirical science is the only, notice, you can just say science and you mean empirical science, right? <laughs> but, so here's the point of all this, right? So if empirical science is, is the only objective vantage point that we have, then there is no transcendent vantage point from which to assess the significance of different perspectives, right? Um, and so uh, final example here to, to bring this point about narrative home to uh, some connection with critical race theory. Consider a, you know, the sequence events of events that we might call the story of, of westward expansion in, the in 19th century America, right? Mm. But the very name of this story implies a particular kind of narrative. Right. If you were if you were a white settler of European descent uh, in the mid 19th century, looking for farmland, the story is one of expansion, westward expansion, a broadening of horizon. On the other hand, if you're a Native American looking for hunting grounds, then the story is one of constriction. It's a narrowing of horizon. Right. Same events. Totally different narratives. And how do we make sense of this? Look, I mean, when all assertions uh, are either verifiable facts or unverifiable opinions, how are we supposed to arrive at a shared understanding of 
how to comprehend something like this history. You could have the louder understanding. <laughs> exactly. So, so, to, so if we just make one more, because I think it's important, right? Just one more point about critical theory, because it fits so perfectly here. What modernity says is, well, look, we've got this other technique. Scientific method is our technique of knowing. Well, we've got this other technique that's going to come in handy here, which is liberal democracy. And so since we don't have any means to have like a rational public discourse about how to understand certain things, because we've got all these different narratives and no transcendent perspective to sort them out, we'll just vote on it. And whoever wins the vote, they get to, they get to decide, right? And this becomes really problematic when you consider the fact that modern or enlightenment techniques of knowing can't actually underwrite their own value. So science can't tell you why science is valuable. Science can't tell you why democracy is valuable. And if the only thing you have to decide what's valuable and, what's, and what matters is sort of a popular vote, well, then you can get together and vote that science doesn't matter. In really broad strokes, I mean, that is the complaint of critical theory about modernity is that ultimately it undercuts its own foundations, mm -hmm. right? And so to take this point about narrative and bring it to critical race theory in particular, folks in the discipline sort of placed the starting point around the 1970s, um, and it started at least as an academic enterprise in, in the field of law when some folks look, looked around and said, we thought we'd been making some progress, particularly with the Warren Court. But it looks, uh, you know, we, in terms of race relations and inequities in the criminal, criminal legal system, we thought we'd be making some progress, but it turns out that these procedural, the, uh, neutral procedural reforms enacted by the Warren Court have either not led to very, very much in the way of equity, or in some cases have actually reversed, uh, reversed course. So that's sort of the origin of, of critical race theory, and it's it's branched out in various ways. But here, so here's an here, here here's an example of of how this grew out of of say critical legal studies. Um, so a lot of white Americans look at the history of race relations as a a story about progress toward uh, racial equity, and particularly in a legal context, right? Uh, this there's this kind of narrative that the Supreme Court has made decisions from around the 1950s, the 1970s, and then you've got civil rights, various iterations of civil rights bills. And uh, this has all resulted in defendants getting really strong procedural rights that offer minority defendants more and more procedural protections against racist or otherwise bad actors in the criminal legal context. Well, these procedural protections, here's to take the sort of critical race theorist perspective on these things. These procedural protections are meant to be neutral, but how neutral are they really? Who actually benefits from the right to an attorney or the right against self-incrimination? Like, so people watch Law and Order, I think, or procedural crime dramas, and they think that a lot of cases go to trial. I don't know. I, that's a, an impression you might get. But in fact, something like 97% or more of criminal convictions in this country are plea bargain. And what good does the right to an attorney do and the right to, to a trial, what good do those things do for someone who finds himself getting arrested, right? And he's going to lose his job and lose his house and lose his kids because he can't afford bail while he wait, awaits trial. And what if the only reason he's been arrested is that like, like many young men of various races, suppose he has a bit of marijuana on him, right? Statistically speaking, for example, there's absolutely no evidence that drug use is more prevalent in, say, the black community than in the white community. 
But it is the case that a lot more black men get arrested for drug offenses than uh, white men. That's established, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, so suppose you know you find yourself getting arrested, and and the only reason you got arrested, let's say, is that is that because um, you're black, and a police officer has some suspicions, right? I mean, you know, this story is very familiar at this point, right? Um, and so you find yourself in a situation where a prosecutor who has a lot of discretion says, "Here are your options. You can wait for your trial, uh, at which point I will impose. I'll go for the maximum sentence I can." because you've made me go to the trouble of going to trial or, and, and in the meantime, since you can't afford bail, you'll lose your job, you'll lose your kids, you'll lose your house. Or you can just say you did it and get some probation. I mean, great that you have a right to an attorney. Great that you have a right to a trial. But as long as we're essentially putting people in prison for being poor, the system is, hasn't really advanced as far as we might like, particularly when we notice minorities are overrepresented among uh, the lower income sort of socioeconomic groups in our society. Yeah, so critical race theory, then it's, it seems like it's shifting its perspective from what are some kind of abstract laws that we can provide in the name of progress, you know, the right to an attorney, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And it's looking at how maybe the abstraction of that law might not actually be beneficial to the particular people who will be benefiting from that law or who will be in need of, of legal protection. Is that right? And it's looking at ways that maybe those laws and um, abstractions are, are actually harming or creating greater inequality for certain people. Is that right? That's right. And so, one, I mean, one, one complaint about the way that progress has been approached, particularly in the area of, of legal reform, hmm. is that the target, the target is neutrality mm -hmm. in terms of procedure, right? And it's just not clear. So, so a neutral system can be good in certain contexts, right? But if uh, so, yeah. So I put it this way: like if you're if you're playing a let's you're playing a basketball game, right? You know, just a pickup game, and uh, there's one team that has uh, bigger guys, uh, bigger bigger players on their team, and another team that has maybe you know players that are perhaps more talented basketball players than as big. Um, well, this is a pickup game, right? And so nobody wants to be the first person to call a foul and things sort of get out of hand and get a little rowdy. And it, and it turns out that what you're playing is something more like a version of football than basketball, right? Mm -hmm. And around halftime, everybody gets together and says, look, man, this isn't, this isn't fun. You know, we want to play basketball here. So we need a referee to come in and, and uh, keep call, call fouls, right? Um, and, and, and keep things uh, under control. Um, well, let's say that the bigger team in this, you know, football version of basketball that happened in the first half, let's say the bigger team uh, ended up accruing a 40 point lead. Yeah. And then you bring in the referee at halftime by agreement. You all say, yeah, this is not working anymore. We need a referee. We need to have rule and so on and so forth. And then you start the second half and the team that's down 40 points says, hey, wait a second. I thought we want to play basketball now. And you say, yeah, we're playing basketball now. Well, you got a 40 point lead that you got from doing something that wasn't procedurally fair. And now you want to have a fair procedure, what you want to keep your lead. Okay. You can have neutral rules, but if, if other conditions in the system are such that, you know, things are not at all equitable, then these neutral rules are going to continue putting out results that are, that are not just. That is such a really helpful metaphor for um, a lot of the things that we've been talking about the last few weeks with 
white privilege and these sorts of things. And uh, I think that's a really apt way to to describe it and thinking about that lead, that advantage that, you know, has put you out out ahead and how how there there's a benefit from you know from the inequity like you like you had described there which i think is just fabulous and i wonder if we could maybe say a bit more about the strengths and the weaknesses uh, of critical race theory in particular so i should i should note that this is not critical race theory in particular is not an area of, of deep expertise for me so so this is um this is my this is my impression of a field that uh, i do not consider myself uh, expert in but what I what I can say is that those who are experts in the field divide sort of uh, critical race theoretic approaches into uh, broadly two camps. One of which deals with systems, like what I've just described. The other side deals uh, primarily with, I guess they're sometimes called idealists. So they do, uh, that could be potentially confusing in context with philosophers. But but they tend to focus on cognition and psychology. And things like Amber, you mentioned before, uh, how we construct whiteness, yeah, or other more psychological or phenomenological, I guess you will, uh, existential kind of ways of experiencing um, what it means to be black or what it means to be white, the black experience, the white experience, those kinds of things. And and, and right, and white fragility and white privilege and these kinds of things. Apart from just saying that some of some of what I've read in, in sort of that strand of critical race theory strikes me as obviously correct. And, and some of what I've read strikes me as um, perhaps a, a bit more difficult to accept. But yeah, so I mean, I guess that's my assessment of that strand for, for whatever it's worth. Um, in terms of the strand that deals more with structural and institutional issues, issues there is more overlap there with, with sort of what, I, what my research tends to focus on. And um, I think there's a lot there that's, that's, that's legitimate, uh, absolutely. Uh, as far as whether it's tenable, I mean, I, I guess that's going to depend on what on on our willingness to say, okay, in some situations, procedural neutrality m- might not be enough, and equity of process might not be enough given such stark inequities and in outcomes. Right. So if you were to say, well, we outlawed redlining back in the what mid seventies, something like that. So it's done. It's yeah. over with. <laughs> Good, good. So, and what, so good. So one thing I want to clarify here is that what I've noticed on, uh, you know, in sort of popular conversations, particularly on Twitter, is that discussions of, like, once you bring up something like redlining, there's a certain sort of corner of Christian Twitter that will say, oh, you're critical race theorists. Critical race theorists talk about redlining, but, but so do philosophers. You know, philosophers have been talking about justice for a couple millennia now, at least. And so uh, if, if you're just inclined to reject anything that comes out of critical race theory, just know that just because something someone's talking about justice, it doesn't mean that it's coming from this perspective. In any case, mm-hmm. yes, yes, redlining's been outlawed. The, the, the thing is that the way that Americans historically, uh, over the last mm, 70, plus, 70 or so years, the way that Americans accrue and transfer wealth from one generation to the next is through home equity. Mm-hmm. That's it. Can you save up your money over time in the bank and get rich that way? I suppose it's possible, but no one actually does that. Very few people actually do that. And, you know, you've got like super, super rich people who, you know, get their money from hedge, fund, hedge funds and so on and so forth. But the vast majority, like 90% of Americans who uh, have a source of passive income that, they, that allows them to pass along an inheritance or help their kids with a down payment on their home or pay for their kids' college education, you know, all the sort of big ticket items mm-hmm. that are sort of pivotal in generating income in one's life. 
that one's parents tend to help one pay for if they have the resources. They get all of that money from home equity. And it just so happens that the, the time period in which redlining was not just legal, but it was enforced as a matter of policy by the government. That period of time was uh, a period of time that saw extraordinary growth in real estate values. And so that was, I mean, just by virtue of living in a house that you were able to accrue equity in, in that period of time, you would have made something like a half million dollars on average just from living in a house with a mortgage that the government's insured. Right. And even if you are thinking, well, I didn't necessarily receive anything from, if you're a white person and you think, I didn't necessarily receive anything from my parents. I paid for my own college. They didn't help me put a down payment on the house. What are still some ways that you still start out ahead nonetheless? Uh, good. Okay. So now, so, so then um, we are, then we're getting into things like white privilege, right? Yeah. So one example that, that you come across in uh, the literature around uh, this aspect of critical race theory is like, so suppose you go in for a job interview, right? And the guy interviewing you is, is a, is a white guy. And then of course you got male privilege, right? Because I'm assuming that the person interviewing you is a guy. Right? Yeah. Um, and suppose it's a, a, a white guy, right? And you're a white guy, you go and you interview and then black candidate comes in and interviews next. Look, I mean, the, the, by virtue of sort of uh, shared life experiences that may be divided along racial lines, the white candidate is perhaps, right? I mean, the, the thing is, like, people who oppose these ideas, they like to point to, like, narrow counterexamples, right? Are there narrow counterexamples? Of course. Of course. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, we're, we're talking about, like, we're talking in general terms here by virtue of having certain sort of shared life experiences that are sometimes divided along racial lines, um, the white candidate might be more comfortable. And, you know, one example I came across, come across in some texts is like, you know, just conventions around golfing. The, the assumption might be on the part of the guy doing the interview is that if you're a woman or a minority, you're probably not into golf. But if you're a white guy, you might get invited to go play golf and maybe you can, you know, continue, you know, network. Yeah. And you've got, you've got social networking and there's a lot of stuff. I got to tell a quick story. So I had this student who was pushing back on, on some of the sort of structural aspects of things in class one day when I was talking about this in in, uh, political philosophy. And his position was essentially this position that like, you know, no one, no one should receive any kind of assistance from the government and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, this kind of thing. And so I, he said like, for example, you know, I got a job last summer driving a truck for this construction company. And I made like $8,000 driving this truck for this construction company. And I said, okay, well, let, let's, um, let's, let's dwell on this point for a moment because um, maybe I won't apply for that job, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, I said, tell me about this. Did you lie to them about whether you were going to be a vet? Because who hires a college kid to drive a truck for a few months and pays them $8,000 when they know they're just going to be leaving the next fall, right? I, so I said, did you lie to them and tell them you're going to be available? He said, no, no, no. I said, well, who hired you to do this job? He said, oh, it was my uncle's company. At which point, even, even he started laughing because he realized how ludicrous his suggestion was that we should be uh, approaching public policy with you know, his particular experience in mind in terms of, in terms of that being normative. It does remind me, especially your golf course analogy, it reminds me, this is different, this is talking about being a woman, but um, when I was in seminary, we frequently had this conversation that 
we noticed that female students tended to be at a disadvantage in the classroom because a lot of what would happen in in the seminary classes is the professors would, after the class was over, they would go out to lunch with the students and they would all hang out there or they would get together and watch basketball that night or they would go golfing or do different things. Some of those things, the girls maybe didn't feel like they were invited to that or there was it was a little bit weird to go or they had children that they had to get back home to. They couldn't just go out mm-hmm. to lunch or in the case of, you know, watching basketball at night or going golfing, that just wasn't something that they particularly wanted to do or felt available to do. Add an additional layer that you have this Billy Graham rule <laughs> yep. where it's like women can't just hang out with men in a social context. And so there's also the taboo of that that's floating around. So it's very common that women will recuse themselves and they, even if it's not said, you can't come with us. <laughs> we didn't invite you. It's it's just obvious that they're not or that they shouldn't or that they would put themselves in an awkward position or put their guy classmates in an awkward position. And so, but what happens is it's in those social contexts that a lot of things come out. Like the professor says, hey, I'm going to be out of town next week. Do you mind stepping in and guest teaching for my intro to theology class? Or um, let's talk a little bit more deeply about this idea that you had in class, or let's further this discussion. And so it's just a way that we as women struggle to have the same degree of access. And it wasn't, it, it was just by virtue of the way things were set up and people related. And then I wonder how much more time, Amber, you devote to writing an email to a faculty member than some of your male counterparts. Oh, a long time. And I usually have several people read it. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. I think all that time, right? Um, I can, I can, I can, I can guess with, with a pretty high degree of accuracy. Uh, whether whether an email without you know before I've seen the name or, or whatever, um, whether the email is from a male student or a female student, hmm. um, because the the emails from female students are, I mean, with very few exceptions, just deferential, providing a lot of context and explanation. Like I'm sorry to even be emailing you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas I'll get an email from a dude that's like, "Hey, this link is broken." Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no period. No capitalization. Right. <laughs> no thing. My classmates in, in in grad school would laugh at me because I would start writing my term paper at the very beginning of the semester. I mean, mm. the very beginning. And I was working on that thing the entire semester long. And they would make fun of me for it because they would wait until two weeks before it was due <laughs> and then yeah. start working on it. But I always felt this additional pressure and so would work twice as hard <laughs> for yeah. the same thing. So... Obviously, we've been talking more uh, at a systemic level. And as you said, I think this is an important distinction. In, in critical race theory or critical theory more generally, there there typically can be that distinction between talking about systems and structures and then talking more about the existential experience within those systems and structures. And so that's where we get concepts like the Black experience, the white experience, what it what it's like to indwell those kinds of systems and structures. And I, I know that there has been a lot of response from evangelicals to critical race theory fairly recently, mostly because it's just grown in popularity. And I, I think evangelicals have caught on to it. And they're like, whoa, what is this thing? Let's talk about it. 
And so I, I'm wondering, one of the things that I hear a lot is, let me give you the biblical worldview interpretation mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or critique of critical race theory from, from a biblical, a Christian perspective or from the perspective of a Christian worldview. Can you talk to me a little bit about the difficulties with that, some of the missteps, and maybe even some of the important assumptions when we approach critical race theory from that particular vantage point? Sure. So, so I want to come at that question of worldview directly, but but if you don't mind, I'm gonna I'm gonna back up a step and just mm-hmm. note the way that critical race theory might be might might inform one's study of theology. Right. So, the idea might be when you, when you think about sort of using critical race theory as a, as a method of analysis, the idea might be something like this that white American Protestants and black American Protestants, because of uh, very different life experiences and, and very different sort of intergenerational sort of experiences, they're going to have really different narratives that inform their understanding of things like uh, Christ's crucifixion. Uh, that is to say, white, white American Protestants versus black American Protestants. They're going to have disparate narratives that they bring to things like the, the crucifixion, uh, and resurrection and so forth, right? So, so to be clear, to be clear, there's an, the, the established reading that Christ died to atone for our sins. He was buried, he rose from the grave. And if you don't believe that, I'm afraid that you're just not a Christian, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's, that's not in dispute. That's not in dispute. But that, that, like, that's a defining feature of, of whether or not one is a believer, right? But beyond that, how should we understand the significance of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection? The cross was a Roman symbol of law and order, not justice, mm. but domination through violence, not unlike lynching in the American South in the era of, in, in, in the era of Jim Crow. Mm. So there's, there's solidarity in, in that recognition. And what about, what about the resurrection? Yes, Christ overcame death. But in so doing, he also overcame political oppression. Because the worst thing the Romans could do to him was crucify him. And the worst thing the religious establishment could do to him was turn him over to be crucified by the Romans. And he overcame it. Now, why, why view this as a threat? Why view this as a threat? If you are, say, a, a Christian fundamentalist. Well, there are two reasons, I think. The first is that the very acknowledgement of more than a single legitimate interpretation or layers of meaning calls into question the fundamentalist's own interpretive authority. And second, white American evangelicals are a part of the established order and the sort of fundamentalist Christian nationalist type of of white American evangelical identifies very much with the established order. So it's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. to see oneself as part of the establishment that Christ overcome. And the business about worldview. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of a tactic that I think misunderstands exactly what a worldview is. So um, as we noted at the outset, the worldview of, of the fundamentalist is actually modernism mm-hmm. because they're quite comfortable with the idea that reason is the province of empirical science. Everything else is, is subject to, well, what? I mean, opinion or appeals to authority, their authority, mm-hmm. right? And there's no, there's no arguing about it. Yeah, I, I guess I would say that the worldview business is, is sort of a reaction to the kind of, of threat. And I don't, I don't mean to charge them with insincerity. But, but I think there is a, a deep misunderstanding about what a, what, what a worldview is. It's not as simple as saying like, oh, I'm going to put on my Christian glasses now. Mm-hmm. 
What what are some better ways to uh, engage critical race theory than from a from an evangelical uh, perspective? Then, if if uh, we want to avoid some of this the worldview dynamics that that you you just uh, articulated for us, what are some better ways forward? Uh, so, in terms of critical theory in general, I think I think it's really really important to understand the critique of reducing reason to empirical science. I think that's very important. And actually, I think that that is how, that is the avenue to actually arriving at a Christian worldview. Because that's, that's how you overcome the modern worldview. In terms of critical race theory in particular, yeah, I think, I think anything that brings one to a deeper understanding of Christ's significance, right, and the significance of, of what Christ has done, I guess would be a better way of putting it, I think is good. So I think, I think there is, you know, obviously my position is that there's objective truth about these things and that that truth is revealed to us in scripture and that truth is univocal, but the univocity of truth does, is not incompatible with a multiplicity of re- revelation, right? Um, so there are layers there. And I think it's always a good thing to understand more of those layers in a deeper way. Well, that's what's so beautiful about scripture and that pastors try to bring out in their sermons each week as they maybe revisit passages of scripture that every time you open scripture, you see something that you didn't see before. And and part of that is just by virtue of the fact that we're finite human beings and we access scripture from the place where we are. And scripture ministers to us and speaks to us as we move about two different spaces. And that's, that's an amazing thing. You don't want to exhaust the meaning of scripture because you want scripture to continually minister to and speak to you at every season and every stage of your life. Sure. And also be able to speak to you via your brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Sure. To see even how, I mean, I remember when I moved to Italy, I recognized that after a couple of years of living there, that I even started approaching the way that I would share the gospel with people differently from the way that I probably have done it in the States, just because of knowing what particular burdens they carry and what particular things that they see and how their world is structured and set up and what ways the gospel speaks directly to those things that Maybe it doesn't speak as directly in, in another context, but it speaks to other things. Uh, so it, in a sense, I, I think that missions and this idea of contextualization already helps us get at this idea that the cross speaks uh, in a wide variety of ways, that the truth of the cross um, speaks directly to people in, of every tribe and language and nation. And so there's there's a depth and a beauty to it. One of the other things I've kind of seen a lot of in these conversations is this question about is it uh, is it possible to be complicit in systemic sin or is it just private individual sin and we even talked about on this podcast how conversations about what the gospel is have also come up in recent months and it's unsurprising because if you define the core nugget of the gospel as just being about this thing that deals with your private sin before God, then it makes sense why you would be less inclined to pay attention to ways that systems are fraught with sin and how Christ's redemption also applies to that. So I think even that theological conversation is to a degree loaded by this conversation on race. 
but I've seen people return then to the conversation on race and say things like, you know, there's there's no such thing as systemic sin because systems don't sin, people sin. There's only personal sin, but I don't have personal sin. Like I'm not a racist. <laughs> so therefore I am not in sin in any shape or form. Right. I call that view piety reductionism, uh, which is the, the view that all problems come down to, you know, individual sin. Mm-hmm. And the problem is not the piety of it, because it's true that sin is bad and bad things happen. Sin, the problem is the reduction, the, the, the reduction bit. Because like we would absolutely affirm there is personal sin. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And um, I mean, what is, yeah, there's, there are many layers of things that are wrong with that. Uh, the, the idea that, well, because I'm not personally culpable, I don't need to worry about the uh, oppression of this other person. Mm-hmm. Which, incidentally, at that point, you do become culpable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. 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 It's just patently false that there's no such thing as systemic injustice. But, I mean, read the Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. And by the way, when you say that, well, whatever past, you know, whatever, whatever advantages have been gained or lost and whatever happened in the past, et cetera, et cetera, you know, it's all what we really need is just share the gospel and like, that's it. You know, this is using God's house as, as a hideout for thieves. That's, that's precisely what it is. Well, this has been a very wonderful and informative discussion. Thank you both for being a part of it. Thank you, uh, Dr. Coley, for, for joining us today. Really appreciated having you on. Oh, it's my pleasure. like more engagement of theology culture and discipleship from the two cities you can find us on facebook instagram or visit us at our website at the if you like the content that we put out here on the two cities podcast please rate and review us on apple podcasts spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts